I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. Hey, guys. Back at the playground again, huh? Yep. You know what this playground could use? A wine country. Heck, Yeah. And some waves, so we could go surfing. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I love that. A redwood forest would be cool. I'm in. Ah, ski slopes. Let's do it. Um, can a girl go shopping? Yeah, baby. Wait. Did we just invent California? Discover why California is the ultimate playground at visitcalifornia.com. Zero Foxtrot isn't just a brand. It's a way of life. Founded and operated by veterans, Zero Foxtrot's unique apparel and gear echoes the grit of the warrior culture. Zero Foxtrot dedicates itself to producing content, honoring the sacrifices of forgotten heroes of the past, and connecting history to the present. Embark on a journey with Zero Foxtrot today at ZeroFoxtrot.com. It's not merely our products. It's about the ethos that we embody. Rugged, resilient, and timeless. This Day in History class is a production of iHeartRadio. Hello, and welcome to This Day in History class, a show that proves there's more than one way to make history. I'm Gabe Luzier, and today we're looking at a turning point in the life of one of Europe's most ancient and mysterious monuments, the day when a British lawyer bought Stonehenge as a gift for his wife. The day was September 21st, 1915. At an auction in Salisbury, England, Cecil Chubb placed the winning bid for the Stonehenge Monument. Chubb, a wealthy local of Wiltshire County, paid £6,600 for the ownership rights, the equivalent of just under $900,000 today. That's a shockingly low price for what's probably the world's most famous prehistoric monument, and Chubb must have thought it was a good deal, too. He hadn't come to the auction with the intention of buying Stonehenge, and apparently he only made the purchase on a whim. But however impulsive his bidding may have been, it wound up having a profound impact on the care and protection of Stonehenge. In fact, without Chubb's somewhat random intervention, the ancient monument might not have survived to the present day. The auction catalogue estimated that Stonehenge was built sometime around 1800 BC. However, it's now thought that construction began even further back, possibly as long ago as 3000 BC. Then, around 1500 BC, the large sarsen stones were arranged into their present shape, essentially a giant stone circle surrounding an inner horseshoe. 
The auction catalog also took a stab at guessing the meaning behind Stonehenge, describing it as, quote, a place of sanctity dedicated to the observation or adoration of the sun. That's about as good a guess as any, as the true purpose of Stonehenge is still a mystery. Some historians theorize the site may have functioned as a royal burial ground, while others think it may have been used for religious ceremonies, healings, or rituals. There's also the possibility it was a kind of scientific tool, possibly a way to predict eclipses or other celestial alignments. Whatever the true case, it took an absurd amount of labor to excavate, transport, arrange, and erect the heavy stones, so whoever put them there definitely did so for a reason. By now, you're probably wondering why such an intriguing public monument was being auctioned off in the first place. But here's the thing. Stonehenge wasn't always open to the public like it is today. It first fell into private ownership in 1540, when King Henry VIII confiscated the monument and the land it sits on from the monks who had served as its caretakers. From there, Stonehenge changed hands a few times, until the early 1820s, when it was purchased by the Antrobus family of Cheshire. For the next nine decades, the monument stayed in the family, passed down from one generation to the next. It gradually fell into disrepair along the way, with people routinely stopping by to etch their names into the stones or to chip off pieces to keep as souvenirs. The British government offered on several occasions to help protect the site, but the family always turned them down. The owners changed their tune, though, after a violent storm on New Year's Eve 1900 that knocked down one of the monument's large standing stones. When that column fell over, so did the horizontal stone resting on top of it. That support beam cracked in half, making it the first Stonehenge casualty since the Antrobus family had taken possession of it. Not long after, Sir Edmund Antrobus, the fourth-generation heir of the monument, tried selling it to the government for £50,000, or approximately $7.8 million today. The government refused to pay such a high price for a now-damaged monument, especially since they'd previously offered to help prevent that kind of damage for free. Around the same time, people began sneaking onto the Antrobus property to see the broken stone for themselves. The family took notice of the trespassers' interest and figured that if they couldn't make a profit by selling the monument, they could at least put a fence around it and start charging folks to see it. On the plus side, turning Stonehenge into a for-profit attraction encouraged the family to take better care of their showpiece. Soon, antiquarians were allowed to help care for and restore the monument for the first time in nearly a hundred years. Fourteen years later, in 1915, Sir Edmund Antrobus was killed in combat during the early months of World War I. Since Sir Edmund had no children of his own, his considerable estate was slated to be sold at auction on September 21st of that year. The event was held at Salisbury's Palace Theatre in Wiltshire County, and was said to be well attended. Among the many bidders was a local barrister named Cecil Chubb. He allegedly came to the auction on a mission from his wife to purchase a set of dining chairs, though some sources claim it was actually curtains. It doesn't really matter in the end, though, because what Chubb wound up buying definitely wasn't whatever his wife had asked for. According to a local newspaper, 
interest quickened when auctioneer Sir Howard Frank announced lot number 15, the Stonehenge Monument and about 30 acres of adjoining land. Bidding began at £5,000 and proceeded in increments of hundreds before grinding to a halt at £6,000. The auctioneer was borderline offended, so he took a moment to remind the room what was at stake. He said, quote, Gentlemen, it is impossible to value Stonehenge. Surely £6,000 is poor bidding, but if no one bids me any more, I shall set it at that price. Will no one give me any more than £6,000 for Stonehenge? The stern rebuke earned another round of bids, driving the price up another £500. The auctioneer was just about to drop the gavel on that still unimpressive price, but at the last moment, Cecil Chubb chipped in with another hundred. The gavel fell, and Stonehenge was sold for the price of just 6,600 pounds. Chubb later told reporters that he hadn't set out to buy the ancient monument, but that, quote, While I was in the room, I thought a Salisbury man ought to buy it, and that is how it was done. Believe it or not, that wasn't a flippant comment, or at least not completely. In the run-up to the auction, there had been rumors that a wealthy foreigner might buy Stonehenge, take it apart, and then reassemble it abroad as a tourist attraction. Chubb was said to have been put off by the idea and wanted to ensure the historic site stayed under local ownership. When asked what he planned to do with the stones, Chubb admitted he wasn't sure yet, but that whatever he did, he would make sure the monument was protected to the best of his ability. We can only guess at the reaction of Chubb's wife, Mary, when she learned that her money had not gone toward the dining chairs or curtains she had asked for, but to the purchase of a series of giant ancient stones. Some sources claim Cecil tried to pass off the stones as a romantic gift to his wife, but if that's true, she doesn't seem to have bought it, because just three years after purchasing Stonehenge, Cecil Chubb gave it away. More precisely, he passed the monument into public ownership by gifting the deed to the British nation. Chubb announced the decision in 1918, writing, quote, To me, who was born close to it, Stonehenge always has had an inexpressible charm. I became the owner of it with a deep sense of pleasure and had contemplated that it might remain a cherished possession of my family for long years to come. It has, however, been pressed upon me that the nation would like to have it for its own and would prize it most highly. Chubb's gift of Stonehenge came with one condition. He insisted that local residents should be able to visit it for free in perpetuity. The request was granted, and it continues to be honored to this day. A handing over ceremony was held that October, and the following year, Chubb's generosity earned him a knighthood. He was recognized as Sir Cecil Chubb, first baronet of Stonehenge. Once again, no word on his wife Mary's reaction, but I bet you can picture it anyway. The funniest and possibly most annoying part of this story is that Cecil Chubb's impulsive bid is what led to Stonehenge being saved for future generations. His generosity finally freed the monument from centuries of neglectful private ownership. It allowed the Office of Works to officially survey the area for the first time, and then to begin restoring many of the fallen stones. In the decades that followed, the English Heritage Charity has carried on the work of restoring and protecting Stonehenge. It was named a UNESCO World Heritage Site in 1986, 
and to this day, roughly a million people visit the site each year. Tens of thousands of those annual visitors are locals, who are still admitted free of charge. The rest are tourists and other out-of-towners, who do have to pay an admission fee. Cecil Chubb had hoped outsiders wouldn't be charged more than a shilling per person, but he was overruled on that point a long time ago, and the current cost is considerably higher. But if it helps keep Stonehenge standing, then it's still a small price to pay, all in all. I'm Gabe Luzier, and hopefully you now know a little more about history today than you did yesterday. You can learn even more about history by following us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at TDIHCshow. And if you have any comments or suggestions, you can always send them my way at thisday at iheartmedia.com. Thanks to Chandler Mays for producing the show, and thank you for listening. I'll see you back here again tomorrow for another day in history class. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, We've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. You've probably heard a lot about electrified vehicles lately. Well, Toyota has electrified options for every lifestyle. We've got hybrids. No plug needed. But we also have plug-in hybrids, if that's your thing. You can even go 100% electric in the Toyota BZ4X. With so many options for reducing carbon emissions, Toyota is electrified, diversified. Learn more about our Beyond Zero vision for the future at toyota.com slash beyondzero. Hey, guys. Back at the playground again, huh? Yep. You know what this playground could use? A wine country. Heck, yeah. And some waves. So we could go surfing. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I love that. A redwood forest would be cool. I'm in. Ah, ski slopes. Let's do it. Um, tenor girl go shopping. Yeah, baby. Wait. Did we just invent California? Discover why California is the ultimate playground at visitcalifornia.com.